I really suggest for people to try to embrace a growth mindset about communication. It's a skill you can improve, and as you do so, you'll reap the rewards of doing that. Even just a sense of command of, wow, I actually am in command of some of these things. As a parent, we know growth mindset is the key to life, really. Right. You know, if, if your kid's like, oh, I'm bad at that, be like, well, you know, you, you can get better because you can get better just about anything if you decide yeah. to put some time and energy into it. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, one of the finest communication gurus in the world, Mr. Michael Chad Hepner. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, how do I know this? It's because Michael was one of the people that helped guide Andrew Yang to political comet dumb, uh, where uh, somewhere in the middle of the campaign, we brought in Michael uh, and Michael taught me so much about the fact that communicating is, an, is a physical activity and there were things that uh, you do natively that you can actually adjust to a great effect. Who knew? Uh, and it, it took me a little bit because I'm the kind of guy and, uh, you know, and, and this is actually very relevant for a lot of you watching uh, today or listening is that the hope is that we can actually provide some valuable insight for you to actually improve your communication in an era when communicating over Zoom or digitally is what a lot of us are, are doing, particularly if you're uh, maybe in job search mode. Like this is going to be a little bit different episode of Yang Speaks in that we're going to try and give you practical nitty gritty guidance as to how to improve your communication skills. Uh, so Michael, how the heck did you get into this line of work? Yeah. Well, I come to it from a theatrical background, like many people do. So I trained as a professional actor. I got my MFA at NYU, and I worked in Broadway and film and TV for about five years. And then the last massive economic crisis we had in 08, 09, basically ended my acting career. It took two years for that to happen, but it ended right at that point. And I'd already been getting into communications at that point. So I started a company in 2010 doing this. And then it just took off pretty quick. So I started teaching at Columbia Business School in 2014 and then got roped into politics a little bit in 2016. And then that's just been the last decade, helping people talk good and stuff. So Michael and I met at a dinner party uh, and then we became friendly, uh, but that was not enough for us to say like, you know, let, let's work with Michael. So we ended up going through a whole a uh, litany of folks kicking the tires and then Michael rose to the top. So I, I will say that if you think that Andrew Yang had his moments on the trail, um, it was in large part from Michael's uh, prodding, <laughs> shall, shall we say. So Michael, you said that you were a, an actor on Broadway. Um, you were in a bunch of TV episodes, right? Like if I IMDB Michael Hepner, uh, you pop up. Yeah, I was a killer on Law & Order SVU one time. I mean, I'm spoiling the entire plot of that particular episode, but yes, I was a killer <laughs> in an episode. Yeah, exactly. But you know what's funny, though, is the, like the theatrical training and the artistic training, it's the core of a lot of it. But what really helped me figure out how to help people was just the thing you were referencing previously is just how physical communication is, actually. And that was one of the big aha moments that happened in the last 10 years where I figured out that not just actors and folks who go through conservatory training for three years, but 
anybody really simply by approaching it in a very kinesthetic, very physical way can unlock what they do natively to your point, what, what they do when they're not even thinking about it. It's so interesting because being a speaker at the convention, I saw it and then you saw different people who had to do versions of it uh, at both the DNC and RNC. And it's very, very bizarre, you know, because like you're addressing a camera and you're pretending that you're talking to a large group of people and everyone seems kind of uh, forced, uh, you know, and, and I understand it because I did it. And having done it, it's hard to come across as human through that kind of medium. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, it's part of the reason why I'm happy we're talking about this because you obviously had that in a very high stakes situation, the convention, but weirdly, everybody's in the same position now. Like everyone all day long is having to do this and in business or if someone's looking for a job, they're having to do this to have pretty high consequence conversations and to do that in a fluid way in which somehow hopefully who they are and what they're good at and what they like comes across even through this medium right here. It's kind of the same thing you had to do at the convention. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, I'm passionate about this because so many Americans are struggling to find a job right now, tens of millions of Americans, and it would be very difficult to put your best foot forward from afar. And there are a lot of corporations that I'm sure are doing interviews over Zoom right now. Uh, everybody, everybody's doing it over Zoom right now. I mean, Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. Yeah, go to meeting and yeah. All of it. It's all like on-camera training now, which is pretty crazy to think how much interaction is happening in that way. And the hard part is, to your point about how we've been looking at how society is sort of getting slotted into people who have a lot of advantages and people who don't, it's crazy the expectation that is put on people. I mean, even just the most basics of do you have a space that you can actually go to to be on video and talk to someone uninterrupted, it's, it's really challenging. I agree. Uh, and hopefully you can help push people in a better direction. So if you're listening to this at home, I know most of us are like this. I communicate how I communicate. If I have a Zoom interview, I'm going to push the Zoom on. I'm going to talk to the camera. And then if people like me, great. If they don't like me, then screw them. Uh, and you know, like what kind of phony nonsense are we dealing with here where now I have to actually think about how I talk to, to, to people. Uh, so so that, that I think is most people's default, uh, shall we say. Um, but I, I want you to think about this as the same you would any other high stakes activity, where if, if you have a big track meet or something, you don't just roll out or a marathon or something, you don't roll out and be like, yeah, I'll just wing it this time. I mean, you train for it, you try and eat right, you treat yourself right. I mean, this is a little bit, this metaphor is not great because it's not, 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 not like you have to necessarily go get a massage before you have a job interview. Uh, but, uh, you know, like just leaving it up to your native impulses may or may not be the right way to put your best foot forward. Yeah. Well, the weird thing is that, so people think about like their presentation or their presence as being something that's all about them. And so they think like, when I'm comfortable, I come across well. And when I'm uncomfortable, I don't. And the funny thing is that for almost everyone, you come across the best when you're actually trying to communicate something to someone else. I mean, legitimately other focused. So as an example, like let's say a friend comes to you and the friend is in a crisis and you start talking to the friend and you 
hear what's happening to them, I promise you, like right away, your eye contact improves. Right away, you begin to speak in very technical language if that's needed or very, very colloquial and casual language if that's needed. Right away, you slow down your rate of speech if the person's having a hard time digesting what you're sharing. You do all that automatically and you never think about like my presentation skills. You just do it because you're using all of yourself to try to reach the other person. Now, what happens in this format is that, I mean, for a bunch of reasons, one of which is you have a little floating box of your video right there that you're staring at part of the time of like, what are my hands doing? What is my face doing? It's very hard not to feel self-conscious the entire time and be thinking about my communication skills. But what you want to do is unlock what people do when they're actually very focused on the other person. And the strange thing is right now, even as weird as that camera feels, this is the vehicle that people have to reach everybody, friends, family, an employer, anyone, this is the vehicle we have. So helping people unlock that idea of other focus, even when they can't help but be a little bit self-focused is really important. Oh, so it's caring about what the other person is getting as opposed to what you are doing at any moment in time. Uh, so do you have uh, principles or things that people can keep in mind to try to Im improve their ability to communicate digitally right now? Yeah, yeah, I do. This relates a little bit to you. So you said, you know, I got in the presidential race because I'm looking around me and there's a lot of huge problems and I feel like I should try to fix some of these problems. It's an exaggeration to say I got into communications training for the same reason, but it's kind of like that. In other words, there is a lot of really terrible coaching out there that people get. And what I mean by that is not like that they go take a class somewhere. There's a lot of received ideas about how you should be better as a communicator. And it tends to fall into two things. One is something called thought suppression. And number two is tremendously reductive coaching. So thought suppression sounds like this. Don't be nervous, Andrew, just be yourself. Okay, so that's thought suppression coaching. You're welcome for that, by the way. That's great, I know. <laughs> number two is like, when you speak, make sure you speak in the lower third of your voice and make broad commanding gestures to emphasize key points. Where yeah. were these instructions when I needed them, Michael? Exactly, no, I'm kidding. Exactly right. yeah. <laughs> Don't be nervous and speak low and gesture big. <laughs> Damn it, I could have been president if you had just no, clued I... me in. You uh, know what's frightening? It, that kind of feedback happens at the highest levels too. It absolutely does. And it's part of why you see people making the same gesture over and over again or speaking in this very reductive manner all the time to try to emphasize key points no matter what they're talking about. So people get this really reductive coaching and the thought suppression is even worse actually because the thought suppression, like just as I told you, don't be nervous. As soon as I say that, your brain goes right to thought suppression, which is like, don't do this thing. Your brain's obligated to look at the thing because it's looking at that thing. Now it's thinking about that thing and how bad you are at not doing that thing. And of course, people get kind of paralyzed in that. So my goal is always to try to get them out of thought suppression and reductive coaching and try to unlock what they do really, really well when they are, back to that point, other focused as opposed to totally self-focused. I love it. You know, when you talked about like the speak deep, um, the person that made me think of was Elizabeth Holmes, the mm -hmm. founder of Theranos, who I met mm -hmm. once and, and she was like, hello, I'm Elizabeth. And you were like, oh, <laughs> you know, I, know. And, uh, I think it was an affectation to throw us off the scent that it was all yeah. a billion dollar fraud. Anyway. Um, so, okay. So, so those are the things that are kind of oversimplifications that are out there that people should not be taking yeah. to heart. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. 
I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm gonna do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right? And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So we have a couple of things that are out there in the world that are not great pieces of advice for folks. Hmm. So so what's the, the good stuff? It sounds like you're trying to discover who you really are. There's like the self-discovery process to, <laughs> to, to communicating. Um, at the risk of being totally dismissive, no, that's not actually what I would say. I, I would change that entirely. I would change that entirely. What I would say is this, is that helping people unlock like who they are really are is simply a matter of reminding them how they use themselves when they're at their most comfortable or their most least self-conscious, I should say. So like if you're asking about principles, a couple things immediately. One, you alluded to this, which is that people totally underestimate how deeply physical spoken communications are. So people think like, if I've done my homework, if I've prepared my PowerPoint slides, if I've prepped for the interview, if I've gone over the questions I might get asked, I'm gonna do great. And it's not true. I mean, think about how many like scientists or subject matter experts there are who are phenomenal in terms of what they know, but they can't actually communicate it very well at all. So the point is that when you put words into language, this remarkable coordination happens where your diaphragm drops down, your lungs fill with air, that air then flows over your vocal cords. They vibrate, they actually move in space. They make some sound. The sound amplifies throughout your whole body and then your mouth and your tongue and your lips and your throat and your jaw, they all work together to shape that raw sound into words that can be understood. So it's much, much closer to a sport than it is any kind of mental exercise. It's part of the reason why we would always warm up. We put so much focus on the campaign of like getting yourself physically and vocally primed to communicate. So the biggest principle that people mess up all the time is they think it's all about what's up here and so much of it has to do with what's happening down here. And you can actually prepare that. And the reason that's so liberating is because that you can actually control. You can't control what question you're gonna get from the interviewer, you can't. But you can control how you've prepared yourself physically and vocally to take that question and hopefully hit it out of the park. So what would those preparation activities look like for someone pre-job interview? Mm, yeah. So that's another big thing to apply it to, which is this. People are good at something. Whoever's listening to this right now, you're good at something. You're an expert in something. And oftentimes there's some sort of a ritual or regimen you go through with that thing that helps you do that thing well. 
So for instance, if you're an athlete, warm up physically like an athlete before you begin speaking. If you're a dancer, same thing. If a singer, same thing. But even if you like to do something much more uh, cerebral like board games, there are still principles that can be applied to speaking that apply one-to-one -one from that sort of discipline. So one thing I often tell people is like, choose something you're already very expert in. Figure out what the principles are of that and apply it to communication. That's kind of vague, but I can get much more specific if you want. Yeah, but, please. Yeah, sure. I'm just, a, sure. I'm imagining I'm a person, I'm a yeah. viewer, and let's say I'm listening to this and I have a job interview tomorrow. Mm. And so then I'm like, okay, now thanks to Michael, like I'm going to approach this like a little bit more of a physical activity. Uh, and then instead of cramming notes into my head right before the interview, I'm gonna do this instead. Mm -hmm. Well, what you would do this instead is you would get physically and vocally warmed up. You can do tongue twisters, you can do stretches, you can get your body and your breath ready to go. There's a bunch of stuff we can share with your, your viewers and listeners if you want to in terms of resources and access and stuff like that we can get to. But that's the principle of the idea. Then, as opposed to thinking about everything on the page, grab a cell phone and talk into it and give yourself rhetorical questions. If I were to get asked this question, what would I say? And start recording it if you want to, if you want to listen back. If you don't want to, even the practice of just saying the stuff out loud helps actually get your body physically ready to go and begins to take those talking points from a bunch of stuff in your head and actually puts it into the real world by speaking it out loud. So wow. one, warm so up, like, two, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you, you, you go ahead. You're just yeah. warming up actually. Yeah, warm up actually, ah, but um, bum <laughs> warm up. Practice actually saying this stuff out loud and do it so that you're priming yourself with a question. Meaning, if I were to put this in the form of a story, it might be. Or if I get this question, what I might say is. So you're actually practicing saying things out loud. So you know those TV characters where before the big interview, they always mm -hmm. are practicing talking into a mirror to like pump themselves up before they go yeah. to the interview. So you're saying that actually is wise like it, it's not just like uh on on tv that you see characters doing that that's actually a good idea yeah well with a caveat sometimes being in the mirror makes people a bit more self-conscious so you may want to have that visual feedback you may not but putting sound into words is absolutely essential i mean a different way to look at the same thing is like is your 10 30 a.m phone call better than your 9 a.m phone call and for Typically, a lot of people, yes. the answer is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and what so. they've done is they use the interview that was at 9 and 9.15 and 9.30 and 10 a.m. as warm-ups to get to the 10.30. So my point is start early or put the warm-up by yourself early in the day before that. And then actually your body will be physically and vocally primed and ready to go to communicate well. Wow. That makes a world of sense to just about everyone mm -hmm. listening to this. Uh, just try and make every call your 10.30 call, so to speak. Yeah but by getting physically and vocally primed. By now, doing an hour and a half of something <laughs> ahead of time so you're not cold. Well, you know what's cool though? You don't need an hour and a half. Like really five minutes will do the trick. 10 minutes is even better. And there's time-tested warm-ups and tongue twisters and exercises you can do. And of course, we'll make that available to anybody on this who listens here, but you can also just Google stuff. But we have a whole series of video warm-ups that we give to clients so they can follow along because it is a little bit different than a sport in that when you're speaking, it's all about this channel right here. So your mouth, your lungs, your windpipe here, and your torso. Now, if you're gonna play baseball, of course, it's a lot about your wrists and things like that. 
communication is a little bit different that way. So there are specialized warm-ups that you can do that are about how you walk and talk. And you have some free resources on your website, right? Which we'll put in the links. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I feel passionately about, so we, when this all happened in March, when coronavirus changed the world temporarily, we took all of our training and we put it online. And so that's everything from executive presence to remote communication, et cetera, et cetera. And then what we decided to do is take the remote communication course. So exactly the topic that you and I are talking about right now and make it free and open to anybody if they've lost a job, been fired, been furloughed, something like that. So this was inspired actually by you and by UBI and by some of the ways in which you're trying to give resources to people. So we thought all people have to do is just email us and say, I lost my job or I've been furloughed. Can I have access to this course? Wow, and because of that, we've been pushing out just a bunch of stuff, a bunch of content for people, and hopefully it helps them. Yeah, that, that's what uh, we're hoping happens from this conversation today. All right, keep going. So now I'm, I'm approaching it like a physical activity. I'm warming up, so I, I'm not stumbling on myself uh, first mm -hmm. thing. What's next? What's next? Okay. So the next principle is this, is that because communication is a physical art form, it needs to be learned physically. So I'll often say to people like, uh, there's this virtuous cycle between content and delivery. You might remember this from our conversations we've had. So content is what you say and delivery is how you say it. And everybody around the world can remember this for the rest of your life. Because if you hold up your two hands, like you're holding binoculars, your left hand looks like a C. Yeah, go for it. There you go. Left hand looks like a C. Right hand looks like the outer half of a D. Content is what you say and delivery is how you say it. And the two things link together into a virtuous or a vicious cycle. Into a heart. <laughs> Into a heart. And right there. I'm holding a content and delivery heart for you right there. Yes. It links together. And then people think that it only goes from content to delivery. Meaning, if I know what I'm talking about, I will say good stuff. But what's more profound, actually, is the other way. Because you can actually practice and control your delivery in a bunch of different manners. So I'll give you an example of how to do this. We often work with people physically, and this is, I'll grab this right here, but there's a couple. I keep these, my desk is littered with these things because it's what I end up helping people do all day long. I have a stack of Lego blocks. I have a whole little stack of post-it notes here. And if you work with someone who is a relentless fast talker, let me tell you how not to help them. Say, hey, listen, Andrew, that was great. You did a great job tonight, but listen, next time, just, just talk a little slower. Doesn't help. I'm sure you know why that doesn't help because you're nodding your head, but it doesn't because the person, you've not given them anything actionable, even more so you've not given them anything physical or kinesthetic they can hang on to. So instead, we often say to people, take a Lego block, say one idea at the end of that idea in silence, stack this Lego block until it clicks in place with the next one. Then pick up another block, say the next idea. At the end of that idea, stack the Lego block again in silence. Next idea, Lego block. Next idea, Lego block. You can do it with post-it notes too. They're easier to transport and most folks have post-it notes. But what you're doing there is you're forcing a change in terms of how their physical communication instrument is working. You're giving them almost a muscle interruption because people who relentlessly speak quickly, especially in interviews, they feel like I've got to get all the information out as fast as I can and they begin to stumble over their words because of it. That's a muscle memory habit. So in fact, they can even practice forcing themselves to actually insert a pause, share one idea at a time. And the weird cool thing about remote communication, and not everything about remote communication is cool, but one of the things that is good, 
is we actually have this weird little boundary right here. I call this the cloak of invisibility. I'm wiggling my hands. I'm still wiggling them, Andrew. Whoa. Now I'm wiggling them still, but they're still wiggling. So people can actually use kinesthetic training to try to force them to change some of their habits. Wow. Yeah. Wow, they could cheat. This is some cheating stuff here, Michael. I can well, cheat. I'm putting Legos together with my hands and you can't see it. I'm kidding. I mean, this is, I will say, I do a lot of zooming, which is probably not shocking to people right now, but a lot of the time your hands are not uh, visible. And so I'm doing stuff, like I'll do stuff with my hands too. Not the Lego thing, but like I'll, so I, I, I love it. Uh, so you can use a physical activity to kind of adjust yourself. Yeah, and it sounds wacky, it's not. It's actually called embodied cognition. So that's a big fancy scientific term for it. It basically means you're learning something by doing, getting information from your body, not just your brain. Because a lot of the habits that people go into when interviewing are things that they're fundamentally not in control of. They get anxious, they stop breathing, they stop breathing, their mind gets a bit panicked because their cells on a cellular level are telling your brain you're drowning because no oxygen is coming into the system. So they feel like I'm drowning. What that does is speed up the heart rate. The heart starts pumping faster. Big muscle groups start getting recruited. Small muscle groups lock up. It's like a little bunny rabbit in the headlights of a car. And then in that state, what they're telling themselves is like, say something smart, say something smart, say something smart. And then inevitably they don't. And then they say like, oh, you're such an idiot. Why didn't you say a smart thing? So that- I said that to myself an awful lot. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Has. What did you say? I mean, no, no, I mean, I, I've definitely been there uh, many times in my life. Um, I, I'd actually think, say, one of the biggest things about running for president and adapting was not doing that uh, because I think my natural tendency earlier in life was to uh, Monday uh, morning quarterback myself or whatnot, be like, oh, we should have done this, should have done that. But when you were in campaign mode, you essentially needed to just go next thing, next thing, uh, you know, and if you beat yourself up over something, um, you know, you had another shot at it well, an hour later or whatever it was. Yeah. And which is not the same in job interview world because it's not like you have a job interview every hour. But uh, so I'm just I was just sharing like one of the things that I had to get better at was essentially not beating myself up. Mm hmm. But it is, it's very related actually. I mean, in a way, this drill I'm talking about right now, it's the exact same thing, which is you're in the middle of some thought, you're in an interview, you can feel it's going badly. I'm saying dumb stuff, this is not going well, I'm on a tangent, oh crap, where am I going? But building that muscle memory discipline, you force yourself to stop, finish that thought, and you know what? I'm gonna start afresh on this next thought. Because what tends to happen is people hit the gas pedal and things go south and then the whole vicious cycle kicks in. So it's actually the same thing, but just on a almost a sentence by sentence or thought by thought basis, as opposed to an entire media event when you're on the campaign trail. So the third thing is to have some kind of physical cues to adjust your behavior You've just described the fast talking, nervous type. Mm -hmm. um, are there other examples of physical activities if I've got a different issue? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'll, I'll give you a bunch. I'll, I'll give you one that, uh, the, the other ones you're, I'll talk about, I, ones I've invented or developed working with professionals, but this one is actually something that goes back to 
uh, ancient Greece here. I'm going to move back in space, Andrew. Watch this. Whoa. I'm moving back in the room. Whoa. So I keep this whole like little wall of niceties for clients, partly because moving in space actually wakes people back up. So part of my job when you're on Zoom all day is to visually stimulate people in different ways. But there's also a whole wall of kinesthetic tools I use back there to help people speak better. It's very so Montessori. What'd you say? <laughs> it's very Montessori. <laughs> it's very Montessori. I guess, I guess you should yeah. do that during an interview, being like, I'm now going to change levels with you just to wake you up interview. Or maybe it would be good. I don't know. Or maybe it would seem weird. Why do you think people move across a stage in large talks when they're trying to anchor points for the audience? Point number one happens here. Point number two here. Point number three here. Oh, I agree with it yeah. would be effective. But uh, obviously the new decorum is to just sit ramrod straight and stare at your camera the whole time if you if you did this rocket back and forth thing it might wake you up yeah. but it'd be like why is the person rocking back and forth no being for like sure. it'd be, it'd be yeah. like oh, oh wait wait i'm gonna do my rain man impression i would do a very nice job i would do a very nice job <laughs> that's not a very good one Anyway, well, um, I can get away with a lot more than maybe someone who's interviewing for a job because my entire purpose is to help people get better and to keep them awake and engaged while I do that. I so you're right. You I would not recommend doing that over and over on a job interview. Bad idea. Bad idea. Anyway, so it did yeah, go ahead. For you. No, it did certainly work for you though. All right, continue. Sorry, you got the cork. So I got this cork. It's a wine cork. You can slice it into slivers. This is the the tool that's very old. This idea, this principle goes all the way back to ancient Greece an orator named Demosthenes who would practice speaking with an impediment in his mouth. And I learned this from the head of voice and speech at the Royal Shakespeare Company in London, a guy named Andrew Wade, when I studied with him at the Guthrie Theater in Minnesota. Anyway, that's the pedigree of it. But all you do is talk with the impediment in between your teeth like that. Now, I have updated this for coronavirus times, which people don't want to put stuff in their mouth or on their face, which makes sense, bad idea. So instead, I've been coaching folks to use this because they do put this in their mouth two times a day. So for the folks who get on Zoom calls and they begin to get all mealy mouth and they stumble over their words and as they do that, they feel bad about what they're saying. So they talk even faster and they close their mouth more. And as they close their mouth more, the words come out even worse and they begin to stumble even more. As opposed to critiquing yourself negatively about that and falling all back in that thought suppression trap, instead, I just have them practice speaking with a toothbrush between their teeth two times a day. In the morning, spit out the toothpaste, practice with a toothbrush for 60 seconds, and in the evening, the same thing. Because what you're doing, just like a swimmer who puts on a couple extra swimsuits in the practice pool, so they increase the drag and they're faster in the actual meat, what you're doing is you're making your muscles jobs harder. So these muscles, they're not used to communicating in a really dynamic, really dexterous, really forceful way. And you're building stronger muscles by doing that. So that's one that's about enunciation, diction, and clarity. That's like putting weights on when you're walking or whatnot. Wow. Yeah, that's that's exactly like just restricting right. your communication muscles. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Continue. There's one for what I call linguistic precision. And all that means is, are you saying what you want to be saying or not? So like lots and lots of people, again, back to thought suppression, they get off the stage, someone says, that was great. But listen, you know, some staffer comes up to them with a, with a clipboard. They say, but next time, just say a couple fewer ums. It looked like you were kind of stammering on that one answer. So just try not to say um, just pause instead. 
So that sounds like good feedback, right? Because you've been given an actionable thing, pause instead of saying, um, okay, fine. Does it work? No, because all the person's doing is thinking about the um, which by the way, is not actually that big of a deal. People are weirdly quite forgiving of filler language. It exists on a bit of a hockey stick curve. So people don't really notice it until they do. And then once they do, it becomes more and more problematic, but it's actually pretty forgiving. So the bigger problem though, is that people get focused on it themselves. So what they're gonna actually play around with is a, a drill I've created called finger walking. And all people have to do is walk their fingers across their desk or table, like so, forcing themselves to choose each and every single word that they share. Once they've reached the end of one thought, they can move their hand back to the front of the desk or so, but not until they've completed that idea. So the point here is that filler language is not a problem, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of you not being in as much charge of what you're saying as you could be. And the problem is not the um, the problem is you're not being as precise as you could be with all the other words. But just thinking that is not enough. The activity of actually using embodied cognition to commit to each and every single word helps people focus in a physical way on the language they're choosing as opposed to the little filler words they're trying to avoid. So that's something focused on linguistic precision, saying smart stuff, saying it in a very accurate and precise way. This is something you could do in the Zoom era because you could do the walking with your fingers, choosing every single word deliberately and just do it on your leg without anyone seeing. Yeah. And then people will say like, you can't do that in real life. And I'm like, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. You can do that a few minutes a day and you're going to build muscle memory. And you know what? It'll be faster than the last 10 years when you've been telling yourself like, stop saying, um, when I get nervous, stop saying, um, stop saying, um, stop saying, um, that didn't work for 10 years. So don't do that anymore. Do this instead a little bit and build some muscle memory. So those are a couple examples of this approach of kinesthetic learning and embodied cognition to build on the delivery side of things, positive communication habits that help unlock both smart stuff and smart stuff delivered well. Wow, I love the mind-body connection aspect because uh, we all need that, I believe. And you're right that everyone's been told to do something and then you can't actually put that advice into, into practice very quickly. Yeah. You know, that's like, I think, a, a bit of an unexplored frontier with this whole thing, which is there's this really powerful thing that unlocks when you get people communicating better is they feel better. And it's not just because they feel better because they said smart stuff. I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been I wrote a piece for Thrive Global, Ariana Huffington's uh, organization, just about healthfulness. And I'm considering examining this more and more and more, which is when you're communicating well, in order to do that, you actually have to stand up a little bit more to have room for your diaphragm to drop down and your lungs to fill with air. And you actually have to open your mouth a bit more for the sound to come out. And you actually have to use your body in a more dynamic way. So on a, a really granular level, you're actually using yourself more like an athlete and it begins to unlock actually feeling better. You have to breathe more. That oxygen actually helps your life. So people are so focused right now on how sitting is bad and it is sitting as much as we do for you know, remote existence right now, it's bad. Is that, why, is that why you're standing? Is that something you'd recommend for folks? Yeah, well, two things. So I have a stool too that I can sit on at times because it's not realistic to think that you can stand for eight hours a day, you know, and you want to be able to go back and forth. But yeah, people should stand for a significant amount of time during the day. They should if they can. 
So if someone has, let's call it a 20 minute job interview, sitting or standing? Mm, I would say standing. Well, that's a very, very concrete piece of advice. And I have to say that I'm imagining you being interviewed uh, and it seems like you would be more effective standing because you seem more comfortable and energetic. I know when I was a candidate, if I had a choice between sitting or standing, I always stood because you were just more energetic. Mm-hmm. Well, you tell me. I mean, I agree with you. But for you, why did you why did you make that choice? Certainly as a candidate, I, because you would project more, you would walk around more, you would keep people's attention better. Uh, you would yourself be more energized, is more active. The other thing as a candidate too, for me, part of my entire jam was being uh, relatively young, no offense to anyone, but you know, <laughs> relatively dynamic. And so, so uh, any chance I had to uh, exude some more energy, I would take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you're not alone in that. Most people are better. I mean, chairs are not good for us. We're not designed to sit, by the way. We're designed to squat. Uh, chairs are sort of this, you know, weird modern anomaly. And it's very hard to communicate well when you're all smushed down like that in your lower back. And it's actually quite hard to have really good long released posture when you're seated. So in general, most people can communicate better when standing, not all the time, but in general. So it's a pretty easy fix for most people, especially you can just put the computer or the desktop uh, or the laptop on top of a dresser or something like that. You described that you have your own space uh, mm-hmm. and it's obviously, I mean, in your case, you're doing this all day long. How do you create a good first impression digitally in mm-hmm. terms of having a backdrop that seems professional without going overboard? Sure. Well, people have probably at this point heard a bunch of the basic stuff. You want a light source from the front so your face can be seen. You want a present background so you have a bit of a depth of field. Mine is actually probably busier than you want for an interview or things like that. I do it again because I'm trying to keep folks awake and engaged. And then I can reference things like Fox and Socks if I want them to do tongue twist or something. You know what has changed my life? Hmm. Uh, I don't know if you have one of these. I'll see if I can show everybody. Um, It's one of these circle lights. Uh uh, uh, That- You like those things? Yeah, like I'll show yeah. you all what it looks like. I mean, you can. It looks like a UFO now. Um, but <laughs> right. I, like this thing has definitely changed everything for me in terms of zooming because you stick it there and then there's always a light on your face. Uh, I think it might have cost, I don't know, 30 bucks, yeah. 40 bucks. Yeah. Uh, this, this, is ni- this is, I think, 19 and it's for a, a laptop. You can just put it right there on the, you know, the camera's right there, put on the lid of the clamshell of the laptop yeah now that thing is he- hella cool like tell like what is that thing is there a brand on that i love it. yours is cooler than mine no yours is cooler no way andrew yours is cooler than mine uh th- i don't know what the brand is but these are you know g- get generic versions of these this is a smaller one so it fits for a laptop if i have a laptop right here but you know you get the idea you just place it right there on the lid of the laptop like so like so yeah uh, around the camera and that way you have that light source that you're talking about, even if you're just on a laptop computer. So simple thing like that. Yeah, go ahead. No, so so lighting from the front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some depth uh, behind you, not too busy, uh, preferably standing. 
Yeah, and then you want to have the camera roughly at eye level, which you're doing a great job of, by the way, right now. Now, that sounds like a few things to remember, right? You're like, huh, three things. Okay, what should I do exactly? It's really simple. Just think of it this way. If you were setting a friend up for a good photo when you're traveling, you would do these same things. You would not put the sun like right behind their head. You would not make the background the least attractive part of the scenery. And you would also not shoot them from an unflattering angle like up their nose or something like that. So just do the same exact three principles when you're setting yourself up visually for success. Right. That's enormously helpful. So, so far we have uh, a few things that I think anyone can implement. Uh, number one is that this is a physical activity. Uh, so warming up is helpful. Um, if you have an issue that you're working with, try and integrate some kind of physical tool uh, mm -hmm. to develop in the right direction. Don't just think, oh, don't do this because the negative thoughts don't work. Set up your physical environment in a way that's going to present you positively. So that's front lighting, some depth, eye level, uh, not too busy. Uh, I feel like already we're going to improve a lot of people's situations because I, I know a lot of people um, do not do any of the things that you and I are describing. Where And, and this is, again, this is not a knock on anyone because I'm wired this way too. It's like, oh, I've got a job interview. All right. Like, you know, let's just set the laptop up and like do the thing. And then uh, and uh, and you, you think, well, like what kind of jerk cares about my lighting quality or my background? But we're in a world where people just take cues from whatever they can. Yeah. Uh, and so if, if there's a way for them to judge you harshly, they'll probably take it because that's just the yeah, way the world is. Yeah. But it, it, you're right, man. It, it's it's deeper than that too. Of like this is now sort of our resume, believe it or not. So people do evaluate people in aesthetic ways. That's becoming more true too. I mean, when this first happened, I think we were in this tremendous moment of cultural empathy, and that almost like the crappier that your setup was, the more people empathized with it and related with it. But we're now going on like month five and six, and employers are going to begin to have a real impression of your professionalism based on how you can comport yourself via video. So it is important to keep these things in mind. It really is. And also, like if you can't see my face, you actually have a much more difficult time trusting me. I mean, I was I, I listened to your podcast, so you and Rutger talked about this, right? That humans have the most expressive faces of any animals in the animal kingdom. And so part of why it's so important so that the employer can see your face or the person can see your face is not to like look good on camera, but actually all of our cues that we pick up on each other about is this person someone I trust? Can I get a sense of what they're actually telling me in an authentic way? Part of it is the visual stimuli we receive from their faces. So it's not just like a, have a nice window dressing. It's actually core to the interaction you're going to have with the employer or whoever it might be. It's true. We have to learn to trust people remotely. And so you're going to take whatever cues you can. Uh, and we're still mammals. We're still just biological creatures. So, you know, we'll, we'll take some of the same cues that we've been taking for centuries. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you another simple thing that people can adopt right away that helps that, which is I, I call this narrating. And what I mean by that is that you can't tell what I'm looking at right now. It seems like I'm looking at you. Well, I put your video box as close to the camera as I can. So I actually am looking at you. But if you have to look away for whatever reason, which people do all the time, right? They're going to look over here to do something. You can actually narrate for people what you're doing. I'm just going to pull up the description of the thing that you sent to me right now. Ah, 
So you actually name for them the activity of what you're doing. And it's a very subtle way to help build trust so that they feel as though you're 100% present with them because they can't tell, of course. So you can simply do that narrating what you're doing. A different one, if you want a different one for people, is that oftentimes the strongest thing you can do when things go wrong, because they will, they're going to go wrong. It's not like an if, it's a when. The strongest thing you can do is actually be transparent in some way. And so because people get interrupted, there's dogs, there's pets, there's tech challenges, people can actually embrace that. And especially if you're talking about hiring someone, that is going to demonstrate a level of in the moment resiliency, in the moment calm, spontaneity, that is actually a good thing. So when mistakes happen, people can actually just be transparent about it. I was trying to make a Marco Rubio joke. Like that, yeah, exactly. it is. But you know what's funny though? So just now you take a drink of water, that's transparent, right? You trying to hide the fact that you're taking a drink of water, not so transparent. So that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. Certainly, if you do get interrupted during an interview, as long as you seem confident and have the right spirit, uh, then people will, I think, completely accept it. Like I I've had my kids run in uh, all sorts mm -hmm. of times and then sometimes people are like, oh, that's cute. I mean, if it happened all the time, then, you know, and it was a jo job context, maybe not as cute anymore. <laughs> but but yeah. certainly if you have like a good attitude, uh, then people will let that stuff go nine times out of ten. Yeah. I teach, I teach three F's for this. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, sticky because it's alliterative, but people remember stuff because it's alliterative. So it helps people out. So we teach uh, the idea of fake it or feature it or fix it. And so fake it means like if the kid runs in, but no one knows if the kid's like right here, like, hi, daddy. And there's just doing that thing. You don't have to say like, hey, Michael, my kid's standing right here. You can just fake it. Great. But if the kid steals the attention of the whole thing, you can either feature it or fix it. And feature it means just what you did. Like, hey, my kid's here. Say hello. We should talk about what to do with interruptions on Zoom. Let's do that for a second. Or you just fix it. Is my kid. Say hello. All right. I'll be back later. You just handle it. So if those Fs are helpful for people, that's what you can think of in a pretty structured manner of fake it or feature it or fix it. Yeah, we've all had those Zoom interruptions. So what are the best practices? That's that's really it. That's what I recommend. Fake it or feature it or fix it. All right. Well done. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that was my joke. That was my, my, exactly. my, joke, yeah. my joke interview question. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I don't know if people still ask that shit. I don't know. I think they ask problem solving questions primarily now, like critical thinking questions and things like that. No, do Probably. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't interviewed in a little while. But anyway, point being, you're right. In the 10 years. So the principle here would be you've got to train yourself to actually take the time you need so you can respond and share a smart question or a smart response to the question, I should say. So I often have people keep like a wiffle ball or something like that on the desk. And actually, when they get a question asked of them, roll the ball forward and let it roll back to them and then answer the question. Now, do that on low consequence calls. I mean, like you're just chit chatting with your friends about stuff, but you're building the discipline of tolerating the thinking time it takes to come up with something that you want to share. I even recommend that people do that even when they don't need it. So you might get the question in the interview of like, you know, tell me about your experience in your last job. And you actually know everything you want to say. But simply by giving yourself some more latitude, some more thinking time before you begin, what you do is you're giving yourself that margin of safety for when you get the question that you really don't know what to say, because you will have built already a track record of taking your time as you move through these answers. So that's a little way people can internalize that habit of pausing before you speak. One thing I can say with authority is that whatever yeah. time frame you think you're pausing, it's actually much, much shorter than that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it might seem to you like you like you're pausing for several seconds, but it's probably significantly less than that. Uh, it's just when you're in that mode of answering a question, even a second seems like an eternity. So you actually can just let that moment breathe and just seem like you're reflecting. They've measured this, by the way. I mean, speakers in high consequence situations, they can be off by up to 10x of what they're, you know, I keep a sticky on my computer here to show clients, which is this equation right there. Do you see that equation? Yeah. P is not R. Yeah. Any guesses on the the uh, words there? Perception's not reality is my there guess. There you go. Yeah. Perception's not reality. And speakers oftentimes in high consequence situations, they'll be off by up to 10x. So they think a pause is 10 seconds and it was one second. And, you know, technology can help in this, actually. So, like, if you're going to be interviewing, record yourself talking, look back. And then actually the little sound wave thing on the voice uh, voice memos app will show you, notice how long your pause is. You're right. I promise you. It's probably at least three times shorter than you think it is. Probably at I least. Got, I got used to this on the trail where mm -hmm. you can pause to reflect and you realize that it's only a second and it's completely natural sounding and whatnot. And no, no one thinks you're just sitting there strumming your chin whiskers thinking about it. Yeah. But see, that goes back to that initial principle I'm talking about of being other focused. So like your friend comes to you, your friend's in a crisis, they ask you what to do. You wouldn't feel some sort of artificial countdown clock of I better start talking because otherwise I won't look like I know what I'm talking about. You would just sit there for a moment, take it in and then begin to share your thoughts as precisely and as helpfully as you could, because in that moment, you're thinking about one thing, which is what should I say to this person right now to help this person? And that's where that pause would come from, a deeply organic place. Pausing comes from two things, two things alone. One, you need some time to think about what you want to say next. Or two, you want to give the person you're talking to time to digest what you just said. 
So it's not as though it's too short or too long. It is about you actually tolerating the time it takes to figure out what you want to say next. And that simple ball drill is a good way to make it, again, very kinesthetic so people actually force themselves to do it because if they try to maintain a pause like that, they're not going to do it. They're going to think they paused for four seconds and it will have been half of a second. Yes, half of a second. Ah, uh, high stakes situations, interviewer, camera in your face, etc. I remember, <laughs> I remember high stakes situations. Uh, all right, so that is the fourth and it sounds like now we're arriving at the pinky. We are arriving at the pinky, yeah. So the pinky is more of a global idea. And the pinky is this, I really suggest for people to try to embrace a growth mindset about communication. Now, it might sound cliche, it's not. So for those of you who might be wondering what a growth mindset is, uh, Carol Dweck, a Stanford professor, was one of the first ones to popularize this idea. It just means that you believe you can improve in something as opposed to like there's a fixed state. Now, the reason I think this is worth saying on this particular podcast is because a lot of folks who don't have a job right now, there are some fixed mindset ideas about their ability to interview. And that fixed mindset sounds something like this, I'm bad at interviewing, or I'm bad at that first conversation, or if I'm talking to someone who is this type of person, I'm bad with those types of people. It's a solid state. It's not like I'm bad currently, or I haven't learned how to do this yet. It's a solid state. And that's not true. So for instance, you can learn how to pause. You can learn how to enunciate better. You can learn how to be more precise with your language. They are skills, just like a sport or a musical instrument that one can practice. And the reason that's so important is because it puts some power back into the person's hands. It's a skill you can improve. And as you do so, you'll reap the rewards of doing that. I don't mean a job necessarily, but even just a sense of command of, wow, I actually am in command of some of these things. So one of the small things, oh, go yeah, ahead, Andrew, a, yeah. As a parent, we know growth mindset is the key to life, really. Right. You know, if, if your kid's like, oh, I'm bad at that, be like, well, you know, you, you can get better because you can get better just about anything if you decide yeah. to put some time and energy into it. Yeah. And as a parent, like what is humbling every damn day, and I'm sure you relate to this, is that like I have these almost arbitrary categories of what I have a growth mindset about and what I have a fixed mindset about. And it's just absurd, actually, as I hear stuff coming out of my mouth. And I'm thinking like, I don't tell my kid that, right? But yet I do. So like, I'm bad at technology would be one. Or I can't cook would be another one. And, and all day long, I hear myself sometimes being an awesome dad and demonstrating a growth mindset. And I know since I'm modeling that, they will do it too, hopefully, right? Fingers crossed. And I also hear myself saying like these tremendously boring, frankly, fixed mindset things about all these other stuff. So it's a good reminder you can apply it to anything, but you can definitely apply it to communicating. One thing that Michael can say with absolute authority is that he's seen people improve in their ability to communicate every single day because he's literally helped them do so uh, and he does it professionally uh, he's helped at this point hundreds even thousands of of people communicate their ideas more effectively thank you yeah I, that's that's true that's how i spend my time i wouldn't believe in this idea of growth mindset if i didn't see it all the time and i mean i often say that like the people i work the, the bravest people i see are oftentimes the people i'm coaching because it's a really brave thing to to 
look at the things you don't do well and then try to improve and get better at that and have that growth mindset. It takes bravery. And speaking of bravery, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think this growth mindset is core to a lot of the things that uh, we try and stand for, you know, Humanity Forward and the Yang Gang and everything else is that we think that there's so much human potential that is going missed and untapped in large part because we haven't invested in folks appropriately and we're all subject to this market mindset that is mm -hmm. kind of crushing our potential. It's like, well, like you, you, you should be this and you should be that and don't study art. Like that's a dumb way to try and make a living. Instead, we're going to try and drive you toward these other things the market likes. Uh, whereas the, the growth mindset can unleash so much in terms of creativity, entrepreneurship, uh, and just humanity, really human potential. Well, that was a lot of what you and Rucker were talking about too, that like our view of the how humans are wired in terms of our policy, it's so just painfully reductive, depressing, frankly, of like you're always going to cheat the system because you just are wired that way and you're reduced to this little idea right here. And you're right. I mean, we should have a growth, growth mindset as a society and I don't think we do right now. I think it's this sheer panic, white knuckling kind of approach where we're taking to civic and public policy. I think your story too is really uh, incredible where you're the artist, thespian, creative performer that then becomes the entrepreneur, business person, guru, development executive. Uh, and now you've given rise to this awesome business that employs tons of people that are going around helping whip people into shape in terms of this discipline, which we all clearly need. I mean, like who the heck rolls out of bed and is this ace communicator? Literally none of us. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to try to develop, particularly in a time when you need to be able to project yourself digitally in order to gain a foothold in the economy in many contexts, um, I think your story really embodies the, the growth mindset we're talking about. Well, thank you. You know, it's funny when you said that about liberal arts, I actually I have a, a near and dear spot for liberal arts because I was a history and philosophy major in undergraduate. I then went into theater and acting for a bunch of years. And then you're right, I embraced entrepreneurialism. And as your story actually shows, it's like a rough go of it at first, my goodness. But then it's really rewarding and really interesting. But I would not have done all that crazy, weird sort of ping ponging career trajectory if I hadn't had an education that really did invite a growth mindset, it did invite like, try this thing, experiment with this, see what you think of that. It, it's important. And I believe in it. Yeah, the fact that liberal arts is getting decimated so much because everyone's castigating it. It's like, oh, what can you do with that? Well, I mean, that yeah. wasn't the purpose of the education uh, in the first place. When if you look at why universities were founded, they were founded to educate us mm -hmm. uh, as moral citizens. And a lot of them were based upon uh, how to educate the clergy at that time. So no one was thinking like, oh, we got to make sure this person has a J-O-B that pays X, Y, Z at the end of it. I mean, <laughs> like, like that wasn't the... That wasn't how these universities were founded. And now the fact that everyone is yelling about, oh, like this liberal arts stuff is useless. It's like, well, actually that kind of, that was sort of the point of this whole <laughs> endeavor yeah. at yeah. a certain point yeah. in their existence, which extended for decades. And losing that, we're gonna lose something really fundamental. Well, your whole argument too, like it points out the absurdity of the critique, 
because the, the time periods in which a given job is in vogue, it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So you can go into college now and four years later, like the career that you had gotten your thing in, your diploma in, might be gone. So like, what the heck are we training our people for? If we're saying these are going to be the jobs of the future, so you should go to college to be prepared for those jobs. I mean, it seems a little bit crazy to me. And really, we do need to train people how to think and how to be inventive because we're going to all have to be really inventive to figure out how the heck we navigate the next years and decades. We're also going to have to do what, what you're training us to do better, which is communicate more effectively. So if someone wants to go to this uh, website of yours and they've lost their job and they need to mm -hmm. access uh, some kind of remote training, uh, what are the resources available to them? You can just say who you like, you know, like where sure. they go. Yeah, it's, it's really simple. A couple things. GKtraining.com is the website. That's simple. But you can just email us at info at GKtraining.com. That's G as in gosh, K as in kite, gktraining.com. And all you have to say is, I lost my job, I've been furloughed, want to get access to the program. That's it. No questions asked, and we'll give you access to the program. We also have an app that's totally free. People can download that. That's a useful tool. It's called Question Roulette, and it's great for interviews. It has a category that is just on interviewing skills. It has like 25 common interview questions in it. You can choose a question and you record yourself answering the question. It transcribes it. It gives you metrics, how fast it talked, how much filler you had, stuff like that. Also, how long you spoke for. And then it has two settings. One is called rapid fire. One is roulette. And the rapid fire is my favorite because it counts it down and gives you a random question. So to your point, it's like, Andrew, what will you be doing in 10 years? And you got to talk. And then you see what the heck comes out of your mouth. In 10 years, I will be president of the United States. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's but that's totally free too. So available Apple and Android question roulette. And if you want access to the remote communications program, info at gktraining.com. Well, you are a force for progress and humanity. I appreciate the heck out of you. And, uh, enjoyed spending time with you on the trail i mean you and i have some memories that will last a lifetime and we are just getting started thank you so much for doing yang speaks gktraining.com question roulette let's become better communicators so that we can have the kind of impact we want to see in the world it's and my pleasure job for those of us who are looking for that yeah it does that absolutely does thank you andrew my pleasure okay.